Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This lesson is week number 31, the book of Revelation, chapter 14. As we uh, work our way through Revelation chapter 14, I want you to keep in mind that John's visions have reached a point in time that is still in our future, that is, it's within the timeline of the end of days. And that's at a time when the Antichrist arrives onto the scene. Now, he's portrayed figuratively as the sea beast with seven heads and ten horns. And we need to keep in mind that he is not the entirety of that beast. But rather, he seems to be represented by but one of the seven heads. The one that received a fatal head wound, but miraculously survived. Now the other heads, along with all the other horns, appears to be governments and heads of state that uh, work to elevate the Antichrist into a powerful political position. So we can characterize the sea beast as generally representing political powers. That includes, of course, the Antichrist. Now the false prophet, in the form of the land beast with his two horns like a lamb, has also appeared at about the same time as the sea beast. The false prophet performs great miracles by means of the power that's granted to him by the dragon. Who's the dragon? Satan. He also entices the world to worship the Antichrist, the Anti-Messiah. And he orders that an image of this Antichrist is fashioned and then he supernaturally gives the image animation sufficient that it can speak. The false prophet is representative then of religious powers. Now the time has also arrived when everyone on the planet is forced to wear the number 666 on their hand or on their forehead or they will not be able to buy or sell. This of course represents not only absolute financial control of the entire world but also the mark of 666 that one bears represents each person's allegiance to the Antichrist who is but the devil personified. So the world is now completely polarized. Those who wear the mark are in God's eyes against him and lost. Those who refuse the mark and are written in the Lamb's book of life are with God and are eternally his. There is no middle ground. And if the words of Revelation are absolute and not conditional, then once a person has received the mark of the beast, there's no turning back to God, even if one wants to. So now, understanding the time frame that we're talking about. Chapter 14 opens 
with the next thing that is to happen, which is Christ returning to earth from heaven along with the 144,000 sealed with the Father's name written on them. Now, this seal not only identifies them as belonging to God in the same way that the mark of the beast identifies those who wear it as belonging to Satan, but the seal affords them protection from the fury of the devil and his cronies, the Antichrist and the false prophet. Now, I'm going to remind you that the 144,000 are Israelites. No doubt Israelites that are saved. They represent the 12 tribes of Israel, with each tribe contributing the same number of people to the group of 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe. And I'm going to remind you also that the bulk of Christianity, modern Christianity anyway, says that despite those explicit words of Revelation chapter 7 that calls out each of the 12 tribes by name and the number of their tribal members that they contribute to the sealed group, modern Christianity says, well, but these aren't Hebrew Israelites at all, they're Gentile Christians. Why would Christianity say such a thing that is clearly anti-scriptural? Because it is a basic, a basic faith principle of most Christian institutions that God has forsaken Israel and turned over all of their promises and blessings to the Christian church. This is what is today called replacement theology or for the more academically minded supersessionism. Christ and the 144,000 now appeared just suddenly on Mount Zion in the flesh for at least in some type of perfected incorruptible flesh and with a new nature, a new spirit with their old human nature having been vanquished upon their death and their subsequent presence in heaven. The com their completed perfection is explained to us in verses 4 and 5. Exactly seven attributes that speak of perfect wholeness are listed. And of course, seven is the divine ideal number that itself is symbolic of perfect wholeness. We spent significant time last week going over each one of these seven attributes and what they mean, so you can review that for yourself. But perhaps next to the passage indicating perfect wholeness of the 144,000, the most important principle for us to come away with is that the bulk of these attributes attributed to them are required of God's holy warriors. So they are prescribed in what is called in the law of Hrem, the law of the ban. So, these 144,000 are the vanguard of God's holy army that will fight the final battles of God's holy war on earth that began 
with the Israelites' exodus from Egypt and is going to culminate only when Satan is fully subdued. So, let's continue now by rereading part of chapter 14. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we're going to be on page 1545. Revelation 14, we're going to start in verse 6. Next I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven with everlasting good news to proclaim to those living on earth. To every nation, tribe, language, and people, and in a loud voice he said, Fear God, give him glory, for the hour has come when he will pass judgment. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Another angel, a second one, followed, saying, She has fallen! She has fallen! Babel the Great! She made all the nations drink the wine of God's fury caused by her whoring. Another angel, a third one, followed them, said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will indeed drink the wine of God's fury poured undiluted into the cup of his rage. He will be tormented by fire and sulfur before the holy angels and before the Lamb. And the smoke from their tormenting goes up forever and ever. They have no rest, day or night, those who worship the beast and its image and those who receive the mark of its name. This is when perseverance is needed on the part of God's people. Those who observe His commandments and exercise Yeshua's faithfulness. Next I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, how blessed are the dead who die united with the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, now they may rest from their efforts for the things they have accomplished follow along with them. And then I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was someone like a son of man, with a gold crown on his head, a sharp sickle in his hand, and another angel came out of the temple. And he shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, Start using your sickle to reap, because the time to reap has come. The earth's harvest is ripe. The one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. And then out from the altar went yet another angel who was in charge of the fire. And he called in a loud voice to the one with the sharp sickle, Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because they are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle down onto the earth, gathered the earth's grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's fury. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. Blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridles for 200 miles. Now understanding that all the things that we've discussed today are in our future, but as far as the end times sequence is concerned, it's as though we've entered the end times, 
Those things have already occurred, or perhaps better, they are occurring and still playing out. So now we find an angel flying about in mid-heaven, proclaiming everlasting good news to the earth. First of all, mid-heaven is talking about the atmosphere. This is where the birds fly. It is not heaven where God lives. Now I want you to get a certain picture in mind of what this meant to John and to those who first glimpsed his apocalypse. See, in John's day, the Hebrews envisioned the earth as flat and usually with four corners. And above their heads was a dome with the uppermost strata of the dome being heaven where God lives. And then just below that area where the clouds float and the birds fly. But it was also where the stars and the sun and the moon hang. So the concept that those in John's era would have understood as that this angel, the one flies in mid-heaven, went to the zenith. He went to the highest point of the mid-heaven where he could see everyone on earth and everyone on earth could see him. And from there, he made his good news proclamation. Now, while of course the way the Hebrews and most other Middle Eastern cultures in that era envisioned the earth and the sky and the heaven, it wasn't accurate, we must take what is said in that context to best understand it. Right? Since although the Bible is God's word to us, it was written by human hands who were time and culture bound. So this angel is visible to those living on earth, just as the sun and the moon are visible to earthlings. And his voice can be tangibly heard just as though he was speaking through a gigantic loudspeaker. His proclamation will be heard by every last human being on earth. So, it will be similar to how it was at Shavuot, at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came to Jerusalem and proclaimed a good news message and every person present heard it in their own language. However, this angel will not speak the good news that we typically think of. So, set that aside. This was not the gospel of Christ that this angel was proclaiming. It was something else. And that something else is the subject of verse 7. The angelic proclamation was this. This is the good news message. Fear God, give Him glory, for the hour has come that He will pass judgment. Worship the One who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. This is the good news message from the angel. So whereas the good news of the gospel of Christ is a universal message of forgiveness and deliverance, this good news message is a universal message of judgment. It's good news 
to believers. For everybody else, it's the message of their doom. For believers, the time we have waited for, for eons, has finally come. For non-believers, a time that they thought was only a primitive fairy tale, believed by the ignorant and simple-minded, it's suddenly upon them. That the proclamation is distributed to people, we're told, of every tribe, every language, every nation, tells us that there are believers in every tribe and language and nation. But it also tells us that this judgment is upon those who are not believers and it exempts no one. No matter how sympathetic or innocent they might seem to us. Some commentators say that this angel is making the final altar call. That is, this is the one remaining opportunity that earth people have to turn from their wickedness and towards God that they might be saved. Well, my response to that is that this could only be the case if this angel makes his proclamation before people are required to take the mark of the beast because once one takes the mark there seems to be no turning back. If what we are reading occurs in the chronological sequence we're reading it in then what the angel is pronouncing is not the final call for repentance and salvation. Rather that time is past. His call is an edict sent from the Most High to everyone on earth, especially to the doomed, to acknowledge the reality of God, which most have denied, and of His imminent judgment upon them for their rebellion and their idolatry. And of course, this is all very unexpected to everybody but believers. But make no mistake, this is no different than offering a condemned man the moment before his execution the opportunity to admit and confess his crime. However, it in no way delays or pardons his execution. One more comment, we're going to move on. When we read that the hour of judgment has come, we need to take this more as an expression than as a measurement of time. The meaning would not change one iota had the message been the day of judgment has come. See, that said, especially in the New Testament, the term the hour when something's to occur is almost always reserved for connection with end times apocalyptic events. So as used here, the term hour simply means that the foretold end times judgment is upon the earth's inhabitants right now. Now remember, back in Revelation chapter 10, at the mighty angel, the one who I think is the angel of the Lord, and he 
puts a foot on the land, another on the sea, and he swears that there will be no more delay. The hidden plan of God will be brought to completion. The good news as he proclaimed to his servants the prophets. So this different angel of Revelation 14 is merely validating and somewhat expanding upon what the mighty angel vowed in Revelation chapter 10. And if we can take what we've been reading in chronological sequence, if we can, it means that after the angel of Revelation chapter 10 made his proclamation, there was this tiny sliver of time left for repentance and for salvation. But the proclamation of the angel of Revelation 14 reveals that that little sliver of time has ended. And it ended when the beast demanded that everyone take on the mark of 666. At that point, a permanent decision had to be made by every living living human. Okay, at verse 8, a second angel appears. Has another message of judgment. This one is specifically aimed at Babylon the Great. Now the phrase, she has fallen, is is repeated. Said twice for emphasis. Essentially, outside of Satan himself, the Lord lays the blame for the deafness of the nations of the earth to his demands of repentance and change. He lays that upon Babylon the Great. It is Babylon's evil influence that made all the nations suffer God's wrath for their own wickedness and idolatry. Now for me, perhaps the most important aspect of this statement is to try to put a face to Babylon the Great. Who or what is Babylon the Great? I feel that it's probably best to begin by investigating what the earliest church fathers thought about the meaning of Babylon the Great. Tychonius, who lived in the late 300s, says this in his commentary on the Apocalypse. Babylon is interpreted as confusion. By it, the city and the people of the devil are signified as is also the entire seduction of the vices that it always exercises for its own ruin and for the ruin of the human race. So Tychonius sees Babylon as symbolic of the city and the people who belong to Satan. But Archimenius, who wrote in the late 900s, says this, By Babylon, he is referring to the confusion and arbitrarily random trials of this present life. For confusion is the meaning of Babylon, and to the manic stupefaction of those who worship idols. But if you were to consider the physical Babylon itself, you would not fall down before the sight before you. So for Ocumenius, once again Babylon is symbolic of the confusion of our present lives, but also it has no reference 
to any physical city including the ancient city of Babylon itself. Andrew of Caesarea around 600 AD so in between these other two in his commentary more or less agrees with Ocumenius in that he, John, speaks of Babylon which refers to the confusion of the world and the troubled disorder of this life which in no way has abated. So, there is no place, there's no city of Babylon, it's just an expression that speaks of the confusion and disorder of the world. So there's three church fathers views on it. Well over the last few centuries, and especially today, there have been any number of speculations about this matter. Now although the archaeological site of the ancient city of Babylon is well known, it remains a relic in a ruin, although, interestingly, Saddam Hussein attempted some rebuilding of it. Some believe that in the end times the city is going to be resurrected, rebuilt, and made the center of the financial world. Others say that while Babylon will indeed be a physical city, that physical city was and remains Rome. Still others say that that term is, is purely symbolic of money and greed and idolatry, the wicked world system overall, if you would. So let's walk through this to find out what we can know. And while some speculation must necessarily be involved since this is unfulfilled prophecy, let's try to limit it as best we can to what we're told in the Bible. Now first and foremost, when we look at where we are in Revelation, we find that Satan always tries to mimic God and God's plans. For instance, while God offers Christ for salvation, Satan offers the Antichrist to counter him. While God offers John the Baptist as the true prophet who announces Christ, Satan offers the false prophet who announces the Antichrist in a means to deceive people to believe that the Antichrist is the true Messiah and not Yeshua and that the false prophet is the true prophet and not John the Baptist. Now earlier in this chapter we heard the word Zion, Mount Zion actually. And Zion is essentially the redeemed ideal Jerusalem of the end times. Certainly not as Jerusalem exists today. It is the purified city of God so the people living there are the purified people of God. So it's my claim that Babylon is intended to communicate the opposite. It represents the satanic antithesis of Zion. Babylon then is the end times city of Satan occupied by the end times people of Satan just as Zion is the end times city of God occupied by the end times people of God. However, however, Zion is not only symbolic. 
it is also a real place. It is literally the city of Jerusalem in Israel. Zion, the redeemed Jerusalem, will therefore be a physical, tangible city with buildings and streets and shops and people living there. So here in Revelation 14, the reason that Jerusalem is called Zion is because at this point where we're reading in Revelation chapter 14, Jerusalem has been purified and made whole. Now it's Zion. So if my understanding of Babylon as being the antithesis of Zion is correct, the mere image of Zion, if you would, then whatever we think Babylon the Great might be or might represent, from the far view, it must fit the mold as the anti-Zion. Now, in most ancient times, when prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and uh, Daniel spoke against Babylon as this wicked and idolatrous place, the term Babylon for them held both symbolic and literal significance in that Babylon was literally an existing powerful and evil city and also that Babylon was representative of the entire pagan world in general that was idolatrous and evil and it oppressed God's people. But, in the Apostle John's day, while Babylon still existed as, a pagan, as pagan and idolatrous, it had become a second-rate power. Because Rome had become the power center of the known world. The pagan and wicked social, political, and economic system that at one time Babylon lorded over, now Rome lords over. And the Ro this Roman system puts believers in Christ, Jews in general, in John's day under the same untenable position as it was for the Jewish people under Babylon in the era of Nebuchadnezzar. So for John, Babylon was kind of a substitute term for the word Rome. Because Jews feared directly speaking out against Rome, and rightfully so. So instead they used code words understood by the Jewish population. As Dr. David Stern points out in his commentary on the book of Revelation, Babylon was a common code word for Rome in the pseudo-epigraphica of 2nd Baruch 11.1, the Sibylline Oracles 5.143 and 159, and in the Rabbinic Writings. Midrash Rabbah on the Song of Songs 164 states directly, one calls Rome Babylon. Babylon, while illustrative and representative of the worst sort of atrocities against God that might occur anywhere on planet Earth, nonetheless was a real place, a real city. And obviously so is and was Rome a real city. So I maintain that Babylon the Great, 
retains to this day and will in the end times that same sort of characterization as an enemy and antithesis of God's city and God's people, Zion, but also is symbolic of evil, oppression, and idolatry, and greed, as well as literal, in that Babylon the Great will be a real, tangible, identifiable city, even though it might not be named Babylon. I think... (laughs) Perhaps the hardest part of my conclusion to accept about what Babylon is is that I can't tell you exactly which city that might be in the end times. And guessing, that's really an unfair slander to any city that I might name. You know, perhaps the next hardest part is to accept that something in the Bible, like Babylon the Great, can be both literal and symbolic at the same time. Some scholars who hold a somewhat similar view as mine on this issue say that Babylon, at least today, is New York City. Others see it as London. Why? Because those two cities are the financial capitals of the world. And without doubt, Babylon the Great will have as its chief attribute the controller and driver of the world's economic system. I'm not saying that I agree that New York City or London are the modern day representatives of Babylon, but whatever they are today is just largely irrelevant as concerns what John is alluding to here in Revelation 14. See, the pertinent issue is not what city Babylon might best epitomize today, but rather What city will be representative of Babylon, the world's godless economic system, in the end times? And as of now, in 2019, that's the future. So it's currently unknowable. Now the reason that God hates Babylon the Great so much is reflected in the second half of verse 8. It is that she... Babylon the Great has made all the nations drink the wine of God's fury caused by her whoring. Now, first of all, whoring in the Bible is indicative of an illicit relationship, usually involving adultery. A whore will sell her favors to anyone for the right price and in the process defile her customer, just as she is defiled. Here, this isn't about sex. Rather, it's about the willing collaboration of people and nations with Babylon, who is also depicted a little later in Revelation as a great harlot, a whore. And by saying that Babylon has made the nations complicit in her wicked actions and character, doesn't necessarily mean that these these nations were oppressed and forced into it against their will. Rather, it means that the the decadence of Babylon was so alluring that they just couldn't resist the temptation. These nations became infatuated, if not intoxicated, with the wealth and the influence of Babylon the Great, and they wanted in. When in God's eyes, 
what they should have done is shun her. Now, while we see this sort of thing happening all around us, in trade agreements with utterly evil, idolatrous, and oppressive nations, this is nothing new. Economic ties to mutually benefit nations has occurred all throughout history. You know, just as we so easily say that the terms politician and liar are nearly one and the same, and we so also rather easily accept that this is just an unfortunate necessity in modern politics, lying is not okay to God just because it's been turned into a profession. And neither is it acceptable to him that a relatively godly nation would, for purely economic benefit, tie itself to an ungodly nation or an ungodly economic pact. That makes the client nation nothing more than a paying customer to a prostitute. The nations that attach themselves to Babylon the Great will not be able to claim innocence or that they're really just victims. Rather, God sees these nations as fully responsible for their decision to attach themselves to Babylon. So they will suffer her same fate. And as near as I can decipher from the Old Testament prophecies, and from Revelation, as we approach the end times, every nation on earth, including Israel, will become a client of Babylon to one level or another. Well, in verse 9, another angel appears. Third one. This one brings a dire warning. It is that if anyone, and I take this to mean individual or nation, worships the beast and its image or receives the mark of the beast they are going to suffer God's wrath that's the message notice that there is no mention of a call for repentance there's no opportunity offered for God's forgiveness taking the beast mark and then changing your mind later is not as simple as regretting getting that tattoo and then trying to have it removed the mark is as permanent as irrevocable as the fate just announced to the wearer of that mark and that fate is that those who bear the mark of the beast will be tormented by fire and sulfur forever and ever this is describing the rather typical Christian version of hell or perhaps the lake of fire or perhaps both. The first image, of course, that fire and sulfur brings to mind is that of Sodom and Gomorrah. But it also reminds us of Isaiah 34, 8 that prophesies the destruction of Edom as well as all other pagan nations. You know, it's worth taking just a few minutes to read this prophecy so that its connection with John's apocalypse is well reinforced in our minds. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 34. 
Isaiah chapter 34. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's at the bottom of the page of page 487. Isaiah chapter 34. We're going to read it all. It's pretty interesting. Come close, you nations, and listen. Pay close attention, you peoples. Let the earth hear and everything in it, the world with all it produces. For Adonai is angry at every nation, furious with all of their armies. But he has completely destroyed them, handed them over to slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. The stench will rise from their corpses. The mountains will flow with their blood. The whole host of heaven will decompose. The heavens themselves will be rolled up like a scroll. All their array will wither away like a withering grape leaf that falls from a vine or a withered fig from a fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in heaven. Now it descends on Edom to judge them, the people I have doomed to destruction. There is a sword that belongs to Adonai. It's filled with blood, gorged with fat, filled with the blood of lambs and goats, gorged with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For Adonai has a sacrifice in Botsrah, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. The wild oxen will fall with them, the young bulls with the strong mature ones. Their land will be drunk with blood and their dust made greasy with from fat. For Adonai has a day of vengeance, a year of requital for fighting with Zion. Its streams will be changed to tar, its dust to sulfur, its land burning tar that will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will rise forever. In all generations it will lie waste. No one will pass through it ever again. Horned owl and hawk will possess it. Screech owl and raven will live there. He will stretch over it the measuring line of confusion and the plumb line of the empty void. Of its nobles none will be called to be king. All of its princes will be nothing. Thorns will overgrow its palaces, nets and thistles, its fortresses. It will become a lair for jackals, an enclosure for ostriches. Wildcats and hyenas will meet there. Billy goats call to each other. Lilith will lurk there. Find herself a place to rest. There the hoot owl will nest and lay her eggs, hatch and gather her young in its shade. There the vultures will assemble, everyone with its mate. Consult the book of Adonai and read it. Not one of these will be missing. None will be lacking a mate. For by his own mouth he gave the order. By his spirit he brought them together. It is he who cast the lot for them. His hand measured out their shares. They will possess it forever and live there throughout all their generations. Now, this is an end times prophecies and is highlighted by the use of these words in verse 8 that the Lord is carrying out his vengeance upon the nations why? for the cause of Zion Zion being the idealized end times Jerusalem so what Isaiah prophesied about the 8th century BC is coming about in Revelation chapter 14 That's the connection. Now, 
Back to Revelation chapter 14, verse 10. Notice that the tormenting of those who have turned themselves over to Satan, those wearing the mark of the beast, says it, it will occur, this tormenting, in the presence of Christ, of the Lamb, and his angels. Interesting. This only highlights the lack of rescue. The inability at this point in redemption history for a person to repent and be saved. Neither Christ nor the angels step forward to mediate the suffering. Rather, they witness it as, 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 as a gallery often witnesses the execution of a murderer. It's not because they have sympathy for the murderer. It's because they want to see justice finally done. They want to see it with their own eyes. That's why Christ and the angels are standing there watching this. The next verse ought to be a wake-up call to us. So we don't continue to be enticed by too many Pollyannish modern church doctrines about believers in the end times. Verse 12 says that when all of this we've been talking about is going on, this will be the time when our endurance as believers to suffer the attacks of the beast are going to be the most difficult to endure because we choose to defy the Antichrist and instead to obey God's commandments and exercise Yeshua's faithfulness. In other words, believers living at this time will be given a stark choice with no middle ground. Either adore and worship the beast and live or obey God's commandments and rely on the faithful work of Christ on the cross and be killed. Either give allegiance to the Antichrist and have a few more weeks or months of a comfortable life or maintain allegiance to God by doing His commandments and trusting in His Son die at the hands of the beast and then accept eternal rewards in heaven later. Sounds like an easy choice now. <laughs> when such a choice is just kind of hypothetical. But it's going to be unbelievably difficult when that time arrives and our choice will be between life and death and you know what? Probably not a quick and painless one. And in many cases, it's going to involve the lives of our spouses and our children. Once again, notice the phrase that says what God expects of His worshipers. It is that we are to obey His commandments and exercise Yeshua's faithfulness. What is Yeshua's faithfulness? What is Yeshua's faithfulness? going to his death for the sake of righteousness. That's his faithfulness. But the part I want to highlight for the moment is that we are also to obey God's commandments. This is not 
that by relying on the grace of Christ that we are obeying God's commandments. Rather, this is two separate things that must happen. First, we must obey God's commandments, the Torah laws. Second, we must trust Christ so much that we are willing to suffer our death the same way He did. What happens if we do the latter, but not the former? Yeshua covered that in His Sermon on the Mount. You get to hear it again. Matthew 5.17-19 through 19. Don't think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the Prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a yud or a stroke is going to pass from the Torah, not until everything that must happen has happened. So, whoever disobeys the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so is going to be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and teaches will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So here is yet another setting that builds upon what we read in Matthew 5, which is right at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. Continuing our sincere trust in Christ will, no doubt, make us and keep us as part of the kingdom of heaven. However, in the social hierarchy that Yeshua sets up and rules over, we will be the least among all the members if we deny the ongoing relevance of God's commandments and therefore disobey them, and even teach that to obey them is a bad thing. But, for those who faithfully obey God's Torah commandments as an appropriate response from trusting in the faithfulness of Messiah Yeshua, we will be placed at the top of the social hierarchy in God's kingdom. Now, think about this for a minute. Since the duration of this hierarchy is forever, or maybe it's only a mere thousand years, as in the thousand year reign of Christ, then I think it might be wise to set a goal for ourselves of being the greatest and not the least in God's kingdom. You know, this thought of enduring the nearly inevitable result for believers living during the time of the rule of the Antichrist and refusing to bear his mark concludes with verse 14. And it says that those believers who persevere are the blessed ones because, (laughs) you don't like this part, once dead, we don't have to struggle anymore. It says they've run their race, crossed the finish line. As we hear from Paul in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. All that awaits me now is the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who long for him to appear. And we will conclude chapter 14 and begin chapter 15 next time.